Hello, and welcome to Macro Horizons High Quality Spreads for the week of June 17th, the elephant in the market. I'm your host, Dan Creeder, here with Dan Belton, as we discuss the Fed purchasing individual corporate bonds for the first time in its history and what that means for spreads going forward. Each week, we offer our view on credit spreads, ranging from the highest quality sectors such as agencies and SSAs to investment-grade corporates. We also focus on U.S. dollar swap spreads and all the factors that entails, including funding markets, cross-currency markets, and the transition from LIBOR to SOFR. The topics that come up most frequently in conversations with clients and listeners form the basis for each episode, so please don't hesitate to reach out to us with questions or topics you would like to hear discussed. We can be found on Bloomberg or emailed directly at dan.creeter, K-R-I-E-T-E-R, at bmo.com. We value and greatly appreciate your input. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Well, Dan, without a doubt, the news of the week for us is the Fed's announcement on Monday that they're going to be buying individual corporate bonds and the turn and resentment that that news precipitated. Now, I've seen some questions out there of investors wondering why risk assets have rallied twice on the same news. Acknowledgement of the fact that we've known for two and a half months now that the Fed was going to be buying individual corporate bonds in the secondary market, the announcement we got on Monday was simply the confirmation of what we knew already. But that's not necessarily true because it's not really the same news. Yeah, you're right. The market reaction was pretty significant. We saw CDX rally about 10 basis points on the headline, but the news was not exactly the same. Even if on the surface, it's largely similar. The Fed effectively changed the terms of this program, and they've now added a third category of eligible assets to buy. So before Monday, they could buy eligible ETFs and eligible individual corporate bonds. They've added this new category of eligible broad market index bonds. Okay, well then I'll ask the question that every listener is wondering right now. What is the difference between an eligible individual corporate bond and an eligible broad market index bond? So from a big picture, almost nothing is different, but there are slightly stricter guidelines for the individual corporate bonds versus the eligible broad market index bonds. And so the individual corporate bonds have restrictions that would require corporate issuers to certify eligibility, specifically with respect to the requirement that they have significant United States operations and the majority of their employees are based in the United States. This new category that the Fed invented on Monday doesn't have these requirements. And as a result, corporations don't need to certify eligibility. And that's an extremely important point that you make there because we've talked about certification for a while now and how it's become stigmatized. One way to put it is that spreads rallied more rapidly than the Fed was expecting, and suddenly accessing Fed liquidity, given how healthy primary markets became, gave the indication that an issuer perhaps wasn't able to issue outside of the Fed, which would be a negative signal sent to the market. So what you have here is a Fed liquidity program of up to $750 billion in aggregate size. I'm talking the PMCCF plus the SMCCF that potentially can't actually buy anything because no corporation wants to risk going through the certification process that enables them to be eligible. It's worth noting that as long as primary market conditions stayed sanguine, there would not likely be any certification. So the Fed had to get creative in how they were going to execute individual corporate bond purchases in the secondary market. So Dan, how did the Fed get around this? So stepping back for a second, the CARES Act requires that the Fed 
only lend to corporations that have significant operations and a majority of employees based in the United States, with a small exception for lending to securities based on an index. Now, this exception was likely in there to allow the Fed to buy ETFs, particularly in the early goings of this program. But the Fed actually created a new index called the Broad Market Index and is buying debt based on that index in order for this loophole to apply. So in a sense, the Fed found a loophole that allowed them to create their own index. And then by characterizing all of their individual bond purchases as broad purchases based on this index, the Fed was able to, in one swift stroke, make the entire universe of non-financial corporate debt under five years immediately eligible for purchase. Is that right? Effectively, that's exactly what happened. Okay. So the Fed clearly had to get creative with how they're going to implement individual corporate bond purchases in the secondary market. The question then becomes, why do they do this now? It's a good question. I think the Fed has probably been sitting on this and waiting to use it for a time when it would be particularly impactful. We saw the sell-off on Thursday where corporate spreads widened, equities were down, and I think the Fed probably used that as an impetus to deploy this program. And frankly, if that was the reasoning, it definitely has had that intended effect. Spreads have narrowed back into where they were before Thursday. Equity market has rallied significantly on this news. So I think it was probably largely related to market performance. Yeah, I agree with you. And I think it's also worth mentioning the impact that the Fed's initial announcement in March had on calming the market. I think that they did ultimately have to follow through on making purchases, and it was beginning to look like they might not be able to do that because it was becoming increasingly difficult to imagine any firm going through the certification process. And while the Fed could potentially come back to the market and say, well, we wanted to make purchases, but things got better more rapidly than we expected, and it ended up not being necessary, we don't think they wanted to do that. We think the Fed wanted to demonstrate to the market that when they say they're going to do something, they do it. So then the next time that the Fed has to announce some extraordinary liquidity facility or some other type of extreme accommodation that the market doesn't hesitate and say, okay, well, is this going to be like the last time when the Fed actually didn't end up buying anything? They need to show that they're going to do what they say they're going to do in order to maintain credibility. And this loophole was how the Fed was able to do that. So now that the Fed has gotten this program off the ground and suddenly the universe of eligible debt is much, much larger than we thought, even just Friday, I think it's important that we get into the nuts and bolts of the program a little bit. So Dan, how will the purchases work mechanically? So we start with this broad market index, which we estimate to have a market value of around $450 billion, including some 500 to 600 issuers. Now, obviously, the Fed cannot accurately track this entire index down to the QCIP. So what the Fed did was they broke it into 12 sectors, basic industry, capital goods, communications, consumer cyclical, consumer non-cyclical, energy, insurance, non-bank slash non-insurance financials, real estate and investment trusts, technology, transportation, and utilities. And the Fed is going to apply weights to each of these sectors and try to buy debt in line with these sector weights. Now, they'll reweight the index every four to five weeks based on changes in the outstanding bond market. But we expect the Fed to be buying in accordance with the sector weights in the index. Thanks, Dan. So with the purchases being focused on a sectoral basis, which I agree with, by the way, it seems impossible to try and weight purchases in terms of individual issuers. That's just not realistic from a mechanical perspective. But with purchases based on a sectoral level, it seems unlikely that there's going to be any individual names that benefit from this new type of Fed purchase system. I mean, I suppose theoretically, there could be some outperformance for 
debt issued by a company incorporated in the U.S. that doesn't have significant operations or a majority of its employees in the U.S. since debt of those companies was originally expected to be excluded and it will now be eligible for purchase. But in reality, I don't really think that will be the case. I mean, it's sort of hard to check that because it's hard to like aggregate companies that don't have significant operations in the U.S. and look for spreads. But I find it hard to believe that there was ever any type of discount to develop for these type of borrowers that would now be corrected since they're included in FedQE purchases. But Dan, what do you think? In your opinion, are there any securities that will benefit from the new terms of the Fed's purchases that we found out about this week? You know, I think broadly, and this is probably nothing new, but I think when the Fed goes to buy individual bonds, either through this program or through the original individual corporate bond program, I think the Fed's going to most likely start with the most liquid issues. So that's going to be bonds issued by large borrowers in large size. And also, I think recent issues are probably going to be more likely to be bought by the Fed than something that's several years old. So I think liquidity is going to be the most important characteristic in terms of determining which securities the Fed's going to be looking for. And then in addition to the liquidity aspect, there's some interesting divergences between this Fed broad market index and the investment-grade corporate index as a whole in terms of which sectors are more and less represented by the Fed sub-index. So obviously, banking sectors are completely eliminated from this index. So banking sector debt, as we had expected, is not going to be bought by the Fed at all. Another sector that might lose out, in a sense, is the basic industry sector. This is the only other sector in the broad market index that has a lower weight than it does in the broad investment-grade index. And that's largely because That sector, for many reasons, is dominated by foreign issuers, and a lot of this debt does not meet the five years to maturity requirement. On the other hand, some of the bigger winners from a sector level for this broad market index, consumer products, consumer both cyclicals and non-cyclicals are well represented in the index. REITs are well represented in the broad market index and technologies as well. That's a really interesting breakdown, Dan. Thank you. And it's worth noting here that those index weights will remain in force throughout the rest of the Fed buying program. But there is one thing that could cause the Fed to deviate from those weights at least in terms of a particular issuer. And that is the Fed still plans to buy eligible individual corporate bonds. The updated FAQs on the webpage made it very clear that eligible individual corporate bonds are still a thing that corporations will have to certify for if they want to become eligible for. And the details around that certification process were expected to be coming in the very near future alongside similar materials for the PMCCF. Now, we talked about earlier, we don't necessarily expect a lot of firms to certify, but if they do, the Fed would then be free to buy more debt from that certified company than they otherwise would have if they were purchasing just according to the broad market index. And any eligible individual corporate bond purchases the Fed does end up making will be held separate from eligible broad market index purchases. And that's an important distinction because it sounds like from what Powell said in front of Congress yesterday, the Fed's going to be very careful about how much they're purchasing in a given week. So I guess let's start with Dan. How big can SMCCF purchases per week really be? So SMCCF purchases are going to vary based on market conditions, specifically as liquidity deteriorates or spreads widen, the Fed has the capability to ramp up its purchases. Now, so far, the Fed has bought roughly one and a quarter billion or so in ETFs each week. And Powell said yesterday in his testimony, they aren't going to be increasing the size of the program as they shift from ETFs to individual bonds. Powell also made a comment that 
He doesn't want to see the Fed running through the bond market like an elephant snuffing out price signals. So it seems like in normal times, this program is going to remain you know, around $1 billion, maybe a little bit more per week, but with the potential to increase based on market conditions. Bonus points to anyone who's listened this far into the episode and has made the connection between the title of the episode, Elephant in the Market, and Powell's testimony before Congress yesterday. All right, so now just to back things up to a high level again, this announcement from the Fed this week feels sort of like the rabbit's now been pulled out of the hat in terms of corporate bond purchases, even though there still remains the potential for primary market corporate credit facility transactions or buying eligible individual corporate bonds through the SMCCF. I can't imagine that there's going to be a third incremental performance in risk assets because of further announcements the Fed will make on existing liquidity facilities. It seems to me that any potential those facilities have are now truly emergency lending facilities that won't be used unless there's a significant worsening in credit markets at some point in time in the future that would incentivize a corporation to go through the certification process and risk the stigma surrounding that. That's very difficult to envision given current market conditions. So if that's the case, Dan, does the Fed have anything else they can do to try and boost market sentiment based on announcements to these existing facilities, not announcement of new ones? I think it's possible that the Fed increases the size of the secondary market facility at the expense of the primary market facility. You mentioned earlier that the PMCCF is unlikely to be used at this point with any real regularity, and that facility has a cap of $500 billion. I think some small fraction of that cap would be sufficient for whatever needs that facility is going to have. And if the Fed sees it as appropriate, they could increase the size of the secondary market facility to say 500 while reducing the primary facility to 250. No, that makes sense to me. Or they could just end up increasing the aggregate size of the facilities in total. So leaving the PMCCF liquidity unchanged, but bumping up SMCCF capacity if they didn't want to send any type of signal to the market that they were not going to be standing there ready to provide liquidity to any company that needed it. All right. Well, thanks, Dan, for that discussion on Fed corporate purchasing. I think we hit on most of the major points we wanted to make. So now with what little time we have left, I just want to briefly comment on our market view and how that has or has not changed in the course of the past week. So one of the main focuses of last week's episode was on the potential for fading stimulus coming from the first wave of government stimulus and how that could add to the possibility for a widening of credit spreads in the medium term, but that we continue to expect spreads to perform well in the near term. Has that view changed at all in the past week? I think it has. And I think the way that I would describe it is our near-term view has started to merge with our longer-term view. And that's been informed by both the July timeframe that we've had on this medium-term view, this expectation for some spread weakness. And also due to the risk-reward profile, it seems like the potential for further outperformance in spreads is now more and more limited. And I think investors would be well served to take days of strength in spread markets and sell into that strength and reduce some risk. Yeah, I agree with you. We've commented a few times here how pre-pandemic spread levels were really not the norm. They were tighter than normal because we were in a low volatility yield grab environment that was bidding credit spreads down to the bottom of historical trading ranges and really across the credit spectrum. We are not in that type of environment now. Even if we don't get a second wave or even if the people aren't going to go back into lockdown and things might not be as bad as they otherwise could be, we're not going to get back down to pre-pandemic spreads, I don't think, 
in the near term. So that leaves you with very limited upside potential, but pretty significant downside risk if there is a large second wave and lockdowns, whether government mandated or self-imposed, become widespread again. And businesses that barely got through the first round have to go through that again and potentially just close the doors rather than try and fight through it again. So it just doesn't feel like a good risk reward profile here. And I agree with your assertion then to maybe take advantage of some risk on days that we're clearly going to begin and we got a few this week in order to start positioning for an underweight heading into larger uncertainty months in the later summer and into the early fall. This concludes Macro Horizons High Quality Spread to the week of June 17th. Thank you everyone for listening. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com slash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy efforts as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. Please email us at daniel.belton, B-E-L-T-O-N, at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show is supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been edited and produced by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal. 